This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Policymaking and good intentions aren't enough to dismantle systemic racism, says author and Yale professor Claudia Rankin. She says white Americans need to slow down and think, even be suspicious of their internal responses to black people. She says racism is so ingrained in American culture that whites don't see it and don't understand what it's like to live as a black person. Whiteness gets its power from anti-blackness. Many of the policies that have been put in place to promote whiteness was specifically targeted against blackness. Mass incarceration, when you look who's in those prisons, and more the most spectacular demonstration of that is who gets gunned down in the streets. Unarmed black people in the streets or in their homes. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Rankin says conversations about racism are difficult, but this is the way to start recognizing and reckoning with the problem. She says building coalitions among all people is necessary to make change. Eric Liu is the CEO of Citizen University and directs the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute. He speaks with Rankin about her latest book, Just Us, An American Conversation. Beyond the topic of racism, their discussion sheds light on how to have difficult conversations without destroying the many different relationships that enrich our lives. Here's Lou. You know, one of the things that is so powerful about this book is that there are many, uh, so many ways in, um, like your previous book, Citizen, an American Lyric. Um, it's written in this way where I, I know there is a logic and an intention and a flow to the whole thing, but one could literally open it up at any point and begin wading in the waters of whiteness, so to speak, right? And your exploration of what whiteness means and what it is and, uh, and the ways in which so many Americans who would call themselves white are blind to it or resistant to the naming of it uh, saturates the pages of this book. And I think the first question I wanna to pose to you is simply, do you come away, having written this book and having engaged with so many people around the country now, around these ideas, do you come away more or less hopeful uh, that white people in the United States are ready for a reckoning with the meaning uh, and the content of their whiteness? Well, I think that the people who are ready are the people who are engaging me. I think a lot of people are not engaging me and I cannot speak to those people. But I think that the people who are interested in a book like Just Us are interested in interrogating why we are still in the moment that we're in. You know, the, 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 you call the book an American conversation um, and yet you also use the word interrogating. And that's, I think, quite on purpose. So much of what's in the pages 
is you interrogating others, but also you interrogating yourself and you being interrogated um, and, and many candid reflections, whether it's encounters um, on an airplane uh, or discussions with people who, with whom you would have assumed you were aligned uh, and you suddenly realize one way or another, um, oh, maybe there's a misalignment or a misapprehension uh, of, of where we stand and what we bring into uh, a room. And I think one of the things that is so moving about the book is that it is this, um, you know, the lens I'll use is kind of Buddhist, almost Taoist, kind of just, um, you know, the, the phrase you use, the, the, the quotidian of disturbance. You dive into the quotidian of disturbance, that daily feeling of asking questions, asking how did I handle this? Asking how did this person handle how I handled this, right? Um, and, uh, and so it's very, it reverberates out. Yes, the people who are engaging with you on this book are primed to want to engage, but even those, and even those you call and describe as friends in the pages of this book, um, often there are misunderstandings or realizations that you're coming from different power positions. Um, what has been, what have you learned? Uh, in the course of sharing these ideas uh, about your own place and position in this ecosystem of power um, as it is color-coded in the United States? Well, I think the most um, positive thing I've learned is that we can take it. We can actually take these conversations in the sense that it will not destroy friendships if they are friendships. And uh, many of the people um, who I have engaged with inside the conversations that are represented in Just Us, we now have even deeper conversations. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it came from the, the sort of taking apart close reading of everything that we were saying. And so that, that's been um, good. Good. It doesn't mean that we won't have other moments where we stumble and stutter and um, um, have to s sort of reassess, but at least we have a groundwork that it's not the end of anything. Um, so that's good. The other thing I learned was that there's some, there are a number of phrases that are sort of um, send us in the wrong direction. And one of them is white privilege. Mm. I think that phrase um, allows people to divert from thinking about the construction of whiteness or blackness into economic privilege. And so often, especially with white men, I get, you know, I've worked hard for what I have, et cetera, et cetera. So I now use the term white living because you know, because that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my ability to want a life where I can just walk out my door, go to the store, buy what I want, come back home without being, without, you know, being racially profiled or um, having surveillance um, even at my own front door. Um, so I think people at least some of the people that I've been talking to are beginning to see the difference between the two. And that's something I would not have come to had I not, as they say, pushed the moment to their crisis, you know, it's mm -hmm. crisis. You know, but in pushing the moment, at least in the conversations you recount in the pages of Just Us, um, that same generosity that I was describing that you have shown me and others uh, over the years, you, you show to everybody you encounter. 
um, whether they want to resist you or not uh, in, in the way that you're probing. Um, and that probing, that idea that um, you came to learn that white living that might be a better way to phrase this and frame this than white privilege, um, well, brings to mind a couple of things. I mean, at Citizen University, we have this slogan, live like a citizen, uh, which whatever your documentation status might be, uh, whatever, however you might enter into this country, to be able to live like a citizen and have voice and have agency and have power and have dignity, um, what you're describing in a way is live like a white. Uh, live like you were white. And that idea that that is not available to all um, is the aha moment that you're able to awaken in a lot of people who call themselves white, right? When yeah. Well, you know, I think in a way you're right that it does come down to live white, like a white, but, but, um, but I really want us to live like a human, <laughs> like, you know, like human beings who are citizens of this great country. Um, and it just so happens that white people have that available to them and others do not. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things um, that you quote in here along the way is uh, something that LBJ said to a young Bill Moyers, uh, and I'll roughly paraphrase, but, uh, um, you know, I think he said, if, and, and he, he said this not in praise of the sentiment, but just as a candid recognition of it in politics, that if you can convince the lowest white man that he's uh, better than the highest black man, uh, you can pick his pockets. Uh, if you can convince him he's superior, in fact, you can empty his pockets. Um, and what that quote illuminates in part is, again, what you were alluding to a moment ago, which is the conflation of color and class um, uh, and, and caste in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have these conversations or when you had them originally about white privilege and white men, for instance, resisted, um, uh, the reaction is very telling that I've worked hard for everything I got. Um, and you quote Brett Kavanaugh in his Supreme Court confirmation hearings saying that, you know, to that effect. Um, but uh, it's a non sequitur in part. One can both have benefited from inherited unearned privileges and work their butt off, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, and it, that conversation unfolds with a certain valence among people of privilege, elite circles, highly educated. Um, but when it comes to working class uh, white people, um, who feel the pinch and the crunch of economic injustice and the, the, the price of globalization. Um, whiteness pays what Du Bois, what David Rodiger, what others have called a wage, a psychological wage, right? Um, and how have you found it possible in talking to white people who consciously or not hold on to the wages of whiteness to let go of that, to realize that it, it's not a zero sum thing, that if they open it up, this greater humanity uh, is available to them rather than something ra rather than simply something's getting taken uh, from them and their last form of social standing gets e uh, eliminated. Well, I think the people I am in conversation with um, who are friends are people who many of whom have done this kind of um, work for themselves already. So it's not difficult for them to take another step towards um, thinking about negotiating their own um, privileges and whiteness and living uh, with, you know, in conversation with me. The people I approach um, blindly, like the men in, in airports, I think those people find these conversations novel 
because they haven't actually had them previously. And, um, and when, that, when the first um, essay in the book um, with the white men on the plane was published in the New York Times, one of the things that happened was I received um, two, over 200 letters, like old fashioned letters saying, mm-hmm. um, this is what my life looks like. And I don't understand why you say this thing or that thing or that thing. And, um, and that was, you know, that's interesting to me because I think people are really struggling with um, what it is they don't get, like why I think something and they don't understand why I think it and, and why they think something and they think I find it antagonistic. And so I think as a culture, we have to understand that the, the culture has made us into these things that are um, segregated and um, pushing forward in ways that will lead us to greater apartheid. And so we're just gonna have to stop and, and start again in a certain way. In, in, in a way, it's, it reminds me of your endeavor at Citizen University, that, that sense of allowing people to understand exactly what it means to be a citizen and without a, you know, one or the other party in play, but just this notion of a civic involvement, um, whatever your public is. And so this conversation, this book, um, is an attempt to really open it out, to butterfly it open in terms of a subject that has enormous effect on our ability to live our lives. Would you, would you attach the word to that butterfly, the word responsibility? Is that a word that, do you feel like this is a book, is both an invitation and an example of responsibility taking rather than responsibility shirking? I agree, I would, I, you know, um, I, it's an interesting word because I feel that the book is an invitation. And as an invitation, it doesn't come with any responsibility. I mean, in a sense, you can open, it's an open, it was intentionally written as an open text that you can take what you can, when you can, and live with it in whatever way you want and how you move away from that and experience and what you feel you need to be accountable to once you, that's up to you. And I, you know, I don't know where you are in terms of who you are and and what you need from this world. And so I leave that part to the person who's the reader. One of the ways in which you do extend that invitation though. It's not an invitation only to contemplation. It's an invitation to, to various versions of what would you do, kind of moral quandaries or dilemmas. You describe one situation where you're at a dinner party, where the only, you're the only black person at the dinner party. Um, and the conversation unfolds where you, you want to, um, and choose in fact to um, do the non-socially lubricant thing and say, hold on a second, wait. Um, uh, on something that that, uh, that that provokes you around the, these assumptions about race, um, and uh, in that essay or in that passage of the book, you you talk about the trade-off between being right and being in the room. Say more about that and and that trade-off and 
that I, I thought that sentence could have been heard or read in different ways. So one being sometimes you just got to eat it and shut up if you if you want to stay in the room, uh, and other times it's just like nothing's worth stay, staying in this room. Sometimes you just got to let it out, right? <laughs> which I suppose is different readers will take it different ways. Exactly. I mean, there is a cost to speaking and I don't want to pretend that there's not, you know, and, um, and in that case, um, that was a dinner party where people were talking about the 2016 election and the, the constant insistence that, um, our sitting president ran on um, economics became more and more insulting to me. And, and, and so that's a, you know, a situation where I decided I was going to push. And, and then I, you know, somebody said, maybe you went too far, but I went as far as I could <laughs> is how I'd like to think about it. <laughs> um, and you know, I've never been invited back to that house since. And um, um, so there are, you know, there are consequences, but that was a moment when I felt like I needed to take it. One of the ways we often frame it in our work is just the, is about the, is when you take stock of the power you have, in your case, the power of voice, the power of that position, when anyone takes stock of that, the power they may hold, uh, and sees it clearly, you face a very binary choice of whether you're going to hoard it or circulate it, right? And you made a choice there to circulate it, spend some of that capital, uh, even if it meant to the consequence might be that you wouldn't be invited back. And, um, and this, is, this raises a question that I think is woven throughout the book uh, in different ways. Even though you talk about collective systemic ills, you talk about history in a way that situates us not just in the perpetual now, but the, the, the through line question is, how do we move from individual level heart work to collective change? Mm -hmm. And how, how do you mean in the framing of this book to, if not answer that question, to invite us to um, reckon with it? Well, what I wanted the book to do is take intimacy, um, those intimate conversations, and first of all, ask the question, what are conversations? You know, when you and I are talking, what are we doing? We're building something between us, perhaps, you know? And, um, and what do we want from these moments? And then I wanted to then almost create an autopsy of the conversation so we could see um, where, it, where it went, literally, where it went, and then show how what seems like an um, inconsequential moment is tied to systemic patterns in our country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a child gets called violent in class. You might think, well, that's one kid in a school somewhere, and well, you know, but, but then you look over to the Verso side of the page and you can see that institutionally, this is something that has gone on um, so that even um, children in preschool begin to understand the social capital of whiteness and the criminalization of blackness um, from the get-go. And so that was really the intention of the book, to take the microaggressions, which is still racism, but the microaggressions, and to open them out 
to the, the long history of systemic violence that has been done to Black people. This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers that limit opportunities for long-term wealth creation. The global pandemic has impacted vulnerable populations and underserved communities especially hard. PayPal believes that financial health and security is an essential foundation for people to pursue a better future for their families and communities, and to join and thrive in a more equitable global economy. Everyone should have access to affordable, convenient, and secure financial services, and PayPal is committed to fulfilling this mission by championing equality, diversity, and inclusion inside the company and outside. PayPal is working to address the economic underpinnings of racial inequality. Learn more about how PayPal is helping to close the racial wealth gap by supporting, sustaining, and investing in Black-owned businesses and communities. Visit the newsroom at paypal.com. When you began this book, uh, indeed, when you were writing it for publication, uh, it was before the pandemic, it was before the murder of George Floyd, it was before the nationwide cascading of multiracial protests uh, for racial justice in the United States, this kind of reckoning, um, but also before the kind of easy, soft commodification by lots of you know, big institutions and corporations uh, who decided finally to get on various bandwagons of justice and Black Lives Matter and so forth. Um, but the net of the last several months is that there is a, um, a more radical, and I mean that in the sense literally of just getting to root causes, focus on structural change. Um, and your book and the way that you frame Just Us, um, and part of the reason why it resonates with me is that uh, uh, it is about the thing that is upstream of structure, and that is culture, mm -hmm. right? It is about the dreams, the interior monologues, the conversations, the norms, the things unsaid and said. Uh, and I'm wondering now, in the wake of how much more uh, visible, uh, surfaced, uh, agitation there is in our society for change uh, at a structural level, um, uh, one possible response would be, oh, well, okay, you know, this was nice, but now we got to get into that other mode. Another possible response, which is my response to the book, is this becomes all the more important in a time like this, attending to conversation in this way, attending to that kind of listening without knowing where it's going to go. Um, and have you found it harder uh, in the environment that we're in right now to convince people of the worth and the uh, potential benefits of this sort of patient uh, dyad by dyad engagement? Well, I think, um, I don't think I am trying to convince anyone. I, I feel the book will do the work that it does and find its way on its own. I, I still believe that one the two things can live um, together, that um, overt um, radical um, movement still needs close reading, still needs um, um, subtle nuance shifting within the conversations. Um, and 
that, you know, I think the book arriving at this moment means that for certain people, this is not the book for them right now because they want a solution. This book has no solutions. They want um, um, direction, how to be an anti-racist. You know, even Kennedy's book is a great book, but this is not that book. Mm -hmm. And um, and there are other books that they can go to. And, you know, thank God we have a democracy and books are not yet banned. <laughs> you know, so they can make these choices. But I think for those readers who are able to understand that institutions are made up of people and that people will have to, I, it sounds a bit corny, but change how they think about the things they think about <laughs> in a way in order for us to actually meet. That kind of work is close to, you know, it's, it's close. It's, it's, it's word by word, it's stitch by stitch, it's thought by thought. And you cannot jump it. I mean, one of the things that is interesting to me now that's happening, and I've, I've seen it in a number of conversations, is that people are saying to me, and many of them white people are saying to me, well, you know, I got a call from Yale and they told me that a job opened up and it was the perfect job for me, but they're being made to give it to a black person. And again and again, that idea that this moment is forcing the establishment to override <laughs> rather than an understanding that there is a way in which many of these spaces are actually so monolithic that they are not capable of, of progressing properly unless they create a more diverse field. Mm. But that's not how it's being said. It's being said we're being forced into hiring Blacks, but you, you, you would have been the perfect person for this job. And I cannot tell you how many, um, and even as my white friends are saying, I understand, I get it, but that's how it's being reported to them. So that, you know, this is, this, you, can, you can change policy, but the work of changing deep-seated cultural racism is a whole nother thing. If, if it didn't take a different approach, um, we wouldn't be where we are now. The work that was done during the civil rights period would have done the job because it did actually um, occasion policy changes. And this will occasion policy changes as well, but will it change people? I don't know. Well, you ask, um, you ask in the book, is understanding change? And your answer is fittingly ambivalent. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and, and that is, uh, that itself is an invitation to the reader to keep reading, uh, for one thing, but it's also an invitation to uh, contemplate where you stand and sit in relation to this topic. I mean, I think one of the things that you, you, there's a passage in the book where you talk about um, Latino and Latinx friends and colleagues, and um, and of course, I entered into this conversation uh, in a kind of categorically comparable position, which is to say, non-white, non-black. I enter this American conversation as a non-white, non-black American. And um, 
And I think, and yet I come into this conversation completely convinced that the problem we have in the United States is that from, from before the beginning, you, you excerpt passages of Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia, which you uh, retitled Notes on the State of Whiteness, because it's just literally passages of um, uh, norms, values, attitudes, and so forth of white uh, su supremacy and superiority. That from the get-go, Americanness and whiteness were seen as the same overlapping thing, seen as nearly indistinguishable. Um, and even though we had emancipation, and even though we had reconstruction, even though we had the civil rights movement, even though we're having Black Lives Matter today, um, it's only been lately um, that people are realizing, partly because of the irresistible demographic tides that are shifting, that we're about to become a majority people of color country, that Americanness and whiteness are delinking, right? They are decoupling. Uh, and for Asian Americans who often have been forced to go into that binary, uh, and decide, are you going to quote, act white or quote, you know, act black? Um, uh, that's a very, I can't wait, you know, th that day can't come soon enough when those things de-link, right? <laughs> when you um, can just act American, you know, and that would mean something in terms of how you treat everyone, yeah. So maybe back to what we were saying earlier about it's not live like a citizen, it's not live like a white, it's live like an American. Mm -hmm. A certain expectation of a combination of liberty and responsibility um, that has always been underwritten as that's what white folks get to do. They get to live mm -hmm. like Americans and others, maybe, you know, Asian Americans can be honorary whites under certain circumstances and certain environments and uh, others, you know, people with brown and black skin who teach at Yale under some circumstances can as well. But um, that, that breaking of the binary, um, do you feel any tension between on the one hand that desire to bust that binary um, and on the, on the other hand, the need to keep at the center whiteness and the ways in which the worst of whiteness manifests itself as anti-blackness? Well, I think it's a complicated question because I think um, whiteness gets its power from anti-blackness. And um, in many ways, many of the policies that have been put in place to promote um, whiteness was specifically targeted against blackness. Um, mass incarceration, when you look who's in those prisons um, um, and more, you know, the most spectacular demonstration of that is who gets gunned down in the streets. Um, unarmed black people in the streets or in their homes if they're women. We don't see those on videos in the same way, but that's happening. So there is, a, there is a way in which black people are targeted specially, intentionally, categorically, um, and that's just it. But, but then you have all these other people, you know, um, Latinx people who, who it's, a, it's an amazing spectrum of people who are moving. You have Asians who are, again, in, it depends on what country, depends on who you are, where your political alliances are. Vietnamese, very Republican, you know, it just depends. And that work, um, is necessary to do because I think without some kind of coalition building, the investments in whiteness 
will continue no matter the numbers. You know, we have an, you know, I would love to know what you think about the electoral college, because that's the way that was put in place to make sure the, um, the population at large, one vote, one person doesn't matter. And, and so if that's the case, then we are still in South Africa in the United States, where a small a, a minority of people control an ever-expanding majority. And it stays that way. I mean, you know, the scariest thing about this, this time in part is the appointing of the new judge to the Supreme Court. And and that's scary because it locks in a treatment that the ramifications will keep black people in a certain place. And me, you know, how can I know that it will keep both women and black people in a certain place? And so, and and we also know that you know Mitch McConnell's um, entire project in the last three and a half years was to lock down the courts with um, conservative judges who will maintain the system, the status quo. So, so in that way, I think the binary stays the same, mm -hmm. but the only way to defeat the binary is coalition building within all of the other hyphenated, as Tony Morrison would call, all of the other hyphenated Americans who, who, um, who make up America. You know, the, the, the work of that kind of coalition building is partly tactical, political, about organizing and so forth. But again, to just come back full circle to where we began, that coalition building begins in the imagination. Right? Every nation is an imagined community and every um, idea that we may have of who is us um, is one that is navigated through books like Just Us. And, um, one, you know, I, I think the question of you can have a statistical majority of people of color and yet still have many of those people of color identifying aspirationally, maybe even explicitly mm -hmm. as white, um, means that white then becomes a proxy not only for the color of one's skin or the privileges in, uh, that attend to it, but just for power itself. Power itself. Proximity to power itself exactly. is what I want to identify with, yeah, right? Mobility, power, yeah. Mobility, exactly. power. everything, yeah. Yeah, and so, the opportunity that you're describing ultimately in this book is one of the imagination. Could we imagine a different kind of coalition? Mm -hmm. right? one, one that is not centered on that color-coded um, allocation of power. Um, exactly. And that work of imagination, um, you know, there, there's so much that you, you talk about in here. And, and what if is, of course, the central question of all acts of imagination. And, um, and I think at the very first pages of the book on page five. Uh, how does one say what if without reproach, right? And that to me is kind of the central question of the project of the next bunch of years for us as mm -hmm. Americans. How do we invite a full people into the what if work of imagining without it feeling like it's reproach, without it feeling like it is damning some as sinners and others as saved? Um, and is it possible? Right? And uh, 
you know, your work fundamentally. And the reason why, I don't know what genre you would put this book in. It's, it, it's <laughs> genre. I guess nonfiction is where it's living. It's nonfiction, but it's poetry. It is imagery. It is, yeah. uh, you know, dream narration. It is history. Um, it is all these things melded. It is interior just reflection. Uh, and it is ultimately um, the external deposit of your interior imagination. Mm -hmm. Right. And you are showing us how to imagine in this way. And I guess the last question I want to pose to you, Claudia, is um, what other tools can you encourage us to use, whether it's other books, other ways of engaging people to build more imaginative muscle, to be able to imagine a different way of being American that's not bound to an old power laden notion of whiteness, uh, to imagine one that's inclusive, whether or not it feels like you might be losing something or gaining something, right? How, how, do, we, how do we build that imagination right now? Well, you know, I think, I'm gonna read you this little paragraph that I was reading an article today by Nina Lahani. Um, and she says, researchers reviewed 1.8 million hospital birth records in Florida from 1992 to 2015 and established the race of the doctor in charge of each newborn care. When cared for by white doctors, black babies are about three times more likely to die in the hospital than white newborns. This disparity halves when black babies are cared for by a black doctor. And then she goes on to say that they're, they're only um, 5% of doctors who are black. So when I read something like that, I mean, which is so killing in a way that, um, that three times more likely to die if the attending physician is white. I think that the other piece of this act of imagination has to be an act of interrogation. Um, you know, people have to begin to really ask themselves, why do I think the things I think? Why am I not listening to this black woman? Why am I dismissive of Serena Williams saying that she is not feeling well, that she has an embolism, that she, you know, while she's in the hospital, why I think white people have to slow down in a way <laughs> and become suspicious of themselves. Um, because it's not cutting it to say, my intentions are good. And that is one of the things, this is why I use my own life as a Petri dish in a sense, you know, because for all of us, we are made by the culture. And we have to, I don't think these doctors want to kill black babies. But I do think that their unconscious assumptions around black people cause them not to listen not to value, not to care on a certain level. So I, I think, yes, we need an imaginative, um, Robin Kelly calls it almost like a surreal leap into what is possible. 
But I also believe that we need to slow down and begin to interrogate how racism and a culture of white supremacist orientation has positioned us to distrust, disregard each other. I will close in turn by reading a final paragraph on the final page of Just Us. Um, you've been speaking throughout our conversation about close readings, close readings of texts, of situations, of uh, our society, uh, and of course of people. Um, and you write, our lives could enact a love of close readings of who we each are, the love of a newly formed, newly conceived one, made up of obscure but sensed and unnamed publics in a yet unimagined future. And then the very last line of the book, a couple of lines later is, tell me something, one thing, the thing, tell me that thing. Claudia, you have been telling us to tell us that thing in so many beautiful, powerful ways. And uh, I have, you talk about the imaginative leap. I have a deep, deep, uh, deep faith. It doesn't require a leap. It's just requires sitting here uh, that this book is gonna transform our country uh, and our society over time, and it's going to sink in deeply uh, in many hearts um, of many Americans. And uh, thank you, Claudia, for this book, Just Us, and for this conversation. It's been wonderful just to be with you again. Eric, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you do at the Citizen University and in terms of having people understand their own power in this country. Thanks, Claudia. Award-winning poet, author, and playwright, Claudia Rankin teaches at Yale University. She co-founded the Racial Imaginary Institute, which explores race through interdisciplinary arts and collaboration. Her latest book is Just Us, An American Conversation. Eric Liu leads the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute. He's the founder of Citizen University, which works across the political spectrum to foster a culture of powerful citizenship. Their conversation was recorded in October. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas and listen on our website. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by Aspen Ideas Now. Our team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Kristen Cromer, Libby Franklin, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenin, Azalea Milan, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com.